Hello everybody um, and Kiora. Today we will be talking about motorcyclists' uh, protective clothing with Dr. Liz Durong. Um, more than 300 people are registered for today's session. Welcome to you all and thanks for joining us. My name is Ekaterina um, and today's session will be moderated by me and my colleague Erin um, Gibson. We are part of the Austroads communications team. I'd like to start by acknowledging the Treaty of Waitani and Maori as the regional people of New Zealand. I also acknowledge the Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the custodians of the land from which we are broadcasting today. Australia is based in Sydney and so today I'm on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respect to all this past, present and emerging and their deep and ongoing connection to the land. A bit of housekeeping for today. Our presenter will speak for about 40 minutes and then we will have some time to answer your questions. The slides can be downloaded from the handout section of your sidebar, which you will find on the right-hand side of your screen. To send us the questions for the Q&A, please use the question icon on your sidebar. Um, also, let us know if you have any technical problems, but just a quick tip, if you use um, sound or if you lose sound or your picture freezes, the issue is most likely with your internet connection. So closing your browser and rejoining the session via your email registration usually helps. Um, this session is being recorded and we will let you know when uh, the recording is available on our website. If you listen to podcasts, you can find Ostroads in your podcast app. A little bit about Austroads. Uh, we are the collective of Australasian transport and traffic agencies and our focus is to support our member organizations to deliver an improved road transport network. This webinar uh, was brought to you by the Road Safety and Design Program, which is managed by Michael Newstick. Um, Austroads presented uh, the Women in Road Safety Award uh, to the presenter of today's webinar, Dr. Uh, Liz Durom, at the 2022 Australasian Road Safety Conference. Dr. Liz Durom has almost 30 years' experience in road safety research and planning with a major focus um, on motorcycle safety. So without further ado, over to you, Liz. Here we go. Oh, good day, everybody. Um, ha uh, let's see. Sorry. Sorry, but I'm having a bit of trouble here. Uh, we can see okay. your screen. So can you good. see? Okay, no, yes. it, my, it wasn't working for a moment there. Okay, so good day and thank you. Um, <laughs> I'm here. I'm here to talk to you about motorcycle protective clothing. Um, for this presentation, I will refer to motorcycle protective clothing as personal protect, which is personal protective clothing, uh, as including jackets, pants, gloves, and boots, and impact protectors. So I don't cover helmets. My focus is on prevention of injuries from the neck down. They're rarely fatal, but they are the most common injuries sustained and for many have severe consequences in terms of impairment and disability. When we speak about motorcycle crash injuries, it's important to understand just how many injured people we're talking about. For example, in recent years across Australia, there have been an average of 223 fatal crashes each year, but 6,705 serious injury, 
16,590 non-hospitalised injury and an estimated 112,000 property damage only motorcycle crashes. Presumably those people were mostly wearing protective clothing, I hope so. Now, if we look at the relative rates of injury per vehicle, for every fatal motorcycle crash, there are 30 other riders hospitalised, 74 who require medical treatment, but, but not being admitted to hospital, and about 502 property damage. So that's five property damage for every injured person. But another way of looking at these figures is to illustrate them, which I think provides a different perspective, and, and it is more confronting. For every fatally injured rider, there were 30 seriously injured. Those are the red in this graph. And 74 injured but not hospitalised. Those are the yellow. And then there's the PDOs that, you know, we really don't know much about those. These numbers are generated from insurance claims, so we don't really know. Um, you know, some of them were, were bikes knocked over by re reversing cars so that nobody was involved. But anyway, it's good to look at the, the dimensions of what the scope of what we're dealing with. Okay, so people often say, how did I become involved in motorcycle safety? You know, pearls, grey hair. I used to ride a motorcycle when I was younger. So I do have some understanding of the issues. Initially, back in 2002, I was asked to develop a road safety strategic plan for the Motorcycle Council of New South Wales. That's the peak body for rider associations in the state. The project was funded by a grant from the New South Wales Motor Accidents Authority, the MAA. Now the success of that progress encouraged the council to ask me to investigate protective clothing to help riders learn how to recognise which garments to buy, what, which ones would be most likely to protect them in an in, from injury. So we conducted a survey of rider, riders' usage, opinions and sources of information about protective clothing. And this was also funded by the MAA. What we found was that most riders wore motorcycle helmets, jackets and gloves, but fewer wore pants or boots. The, the riders were also told us they were concerned about lack of information. They felt forced to rely on advertising, price and brand names for their making their purchasing decisions. There were no standards for motorcycle clothing at that time and the industry was not regulated in any way in Australia. However, coincidentally that year, mandatory standards for motorcycle protective clothing, for the manufacturers of motorcycle protective clothing, were issued in Europe. And, but from my consultations with the local industry, they were not yet aware of, the, of, of that change, nor what it might mean for their businesses and customers. And, and what, I mean, one of, the, one of the potential risks was that substandard products might be dumped on our shores once they were no longer allowed to be sold in Europe. So we decided to hold a seminar, which the MAA funded, to alert the local industry, the importers, the manufacturers, the retailers, on this coming change that might affect them. We invited Paul Van Severi to be the keynote speaker at that seminar. He's a, formula, a former manufacturer of motorcycle clothing in Britain, and he was one of the authors of the new European standard that had just been issued. 
Other speakers represented Standards Australia, the Australian Consumer and Competition Commission, and also the Australian Consumer Association. Now, the outcome of that seminar, which was very successful, was the establishment of an injury working group to investigate a system to ensure the quality of the motorcycle clothing sold in Australia. Unfortunately, over time, that process stalled. I continued my research into protective clothing and the first stage for me was to understand how protective clothing works. Can it be effective and, and what are the limitations? Now, for me, the best source was Professor Roderick Woods, who wrote the first standard for motorcycle protective clothing, the Cambridge Standard, in 1994. It was never issued as a, as a, a regulatory standard, but it did form the basis of the new European standards issued in 20, 2002. And basically the mechanisms are all about protection from injuries in contact with the road surface. So this is achieved by having skin and soft tissue being covered by layers, not one layer, layers of material that are abrasion, cut and tear resistant. And those garments must be constructed with seams and fastenings that won't burst on impact. And the garments must include slippery inner liners so, so that the rider's body can slide around inside the garment if it hits the road and is sliding on the road. That that's to prevent um, skin shear injuries. Finally, the garments must be fitted with impact protection to absorb and, and distribute the force of direct impacts to the most exposed parts of the body. Those are the shoulders, elbows, hips and knees. That's why we wear protect, impact protectors over those parts of the body. The thing about impact protectors is that people don't, I don't think people really appreciate, they can, they can reduce the severity of a fracture, making it more likely to be a closed rather than an open fracture. An open fracture is where the skin is also broken. Those sorts of injuries are much harder to heal and they're very susceptible to infection. Recent research at the time, 2002, by Dietmar Otti at Hanover University in Germany, he found that the presence of impact protection over a, a limb over, increased the threshold for fractures to occur so that if an impact at 40 kilometres an hour would fracture an unprotected bone, it would take it, uh, an impact of 50 kilometres to fracture a protected bone. So that's a, a way of thinking about it. But however, there's obviously many injuries, cr crushing, bending, massive penetrating injuries, high, high energy shock waves that protective clothing can't, can't do anything about. Okay. So once you understand how protection can work, the next step is the frequency and types of injuries that motorcyclists sustain. Now this graph here is, uh, is from a recent population-based study of motorcycle injury claims in Tasmania over five years. Now I report injuries 
um, by the parts, according to the parts of the body that could be protected by, by clothing. So different injury types are associated with different areas of the body and those patterns relate to the types of protection required. So on this graph, the red line shows the percentage of injury claims for each body area. Now the two areas of the body most commonly injured 45% of all claims for leg and knee injuries, 43% for arm and shoulder injuries, 27% for hand and wrist injuries, and 20% for leg and for feet and ankles. Now the in injuries that are most amenable to protection are fractures that comprise 50% of all, all claims and open wounds, which is 30% of all claims. Now on this graph, green represents the fracture injuries. So you can see this is 50%, 51% of the upper torso and also 51% of the hands and wrists. Okay, that's 51% of claims with injuries to the hands and wrists and so on. 42% um, for ankles, feet and ankles and 35% for arms and shoulder injuries. Now the purple, which is open wounds, 30% of all claims. Here we've got 25% of head and face injuries, that's principally to the face. Um, and then you, the, the, the greatest area is legs and knees with 41% um, of all leg knee injuries were fractures, 27% of the lower torso and 25%, as I said, of basically face in, facial injuries. Now, the, the next question is types of crash. So does, does injury risk vary by this type of motorcycle crash? And it does, very much so. The low, the low, you've got three types, three main types, the low side, the high side, and the collision. The low side are least likely to result in serious or life-threatening injuries, provided the rider's not you know, trapped under the bike or collides with another vehicle or fixed objects. Protective clothing has the the major role in reducing injuries in this type of crash. High sides occur when the bike stops suddenly and the, and the rider is thrown up into the air and then falls. So these crashes can result in very serious injuries, including fatal injuries, depending on how and where the rider's body lands. And Given the force of those of those impacts, the rider's body is also likely to continue to roll and tumble over the road surface. So the, there is a role for protective clothing there um, to reduce those injuries from in contact with the road surface. But the major injury has may have already occurred uh, in in that first impact. The last type of collisions. These are the worst types of crashes. Um, clothing, apart from helmets, may have a very limited role here. Um, collisions with another vehicle account for three times the number of fatal crashes as, single, as do single motor vehicle, motorcycle crashes. So when I started this project in 2002, <laughs> it's 20 years, uh, there was actually very little data available about the effectiveness of motorcycle protective clothing when we knew how it worked, but actually studying whether or not it did work um, was not known. I did. De I developed a research plan with the Motorcycle Council and with Tom Gibson from Human Impact Engineering, but such research is really expensive and we were not successful in obtaining funding. 
the way forward didn't appear until I met eminent injuries epidemiologist, Professor Rebecca Ivers from the George Institute, who suggested that I enrol and apply to conduct that research as a PhD student at Sydney University, which was a big of a jolt in my life plan, but still. In 2007, that was the following year, I was awarded a postgraduate research scholarship by the NRMA ACT Road Safety Trust and was also successful in applying for research funding from Swan Insurance and the NRMA Motoring Services in New South Wales. So that was the start of the, the next episode. The main study here is known as the GEAR study. It was conducted in the ACT at Canberra Hospital where I was appointed as an honorary research associate in the emergency department. And the aim was to investigate the protective benefits of motorcycle protective clothing in reducing the risk and severity of injuries. Now until that time, most injury studies had been based on hospitalized riders, but we needed to know what had been worn by those who were not injured. We had a plan to recruit every rider, injured and uninjured, from serious motorcycle crashes anywhere in the ACT, that's the Australian Capital Territory, through the emergency departments at Canberra and Calvary Hospitals, and from the 14 motorcycle repair services in the region. So if the rider wasn't injured, but their bike was, we wanted them in our study. This study was also conducted over 12 months to account for seasonal change in riding activity and also what, what sort of protective clothing people wore. We, also, we interviewed the riders within two weeks of the crash and then followed them up at six weeks and six months to, to, cut, to monitor their recovery progress. Now, these are the results of that study or some of them. Um, if you look at if you look at the, the legend first, non-motorcycle clothing, that is non-motorcycle clothing is red. Blue is motorcycle clothing, but not fitted with impact protection. And green is motorcycle clothing that is fitted with impact protection. And really the pattern, the pattern of injury risk is very clear for each garment worn. So, and this is for any injury. So, 92% of the riders who are riding unprotected, that is not wearing a motorcycle jacket, 92% of them had some injuries of any sort of injury, but some injuries. And we look there for the gloves, the pants and the footwear. The purple for the footwear is, a, is for shoes, um, I, I, it, it, which is an interesting point. I wanted to separate non-motorcycle boots, which is red, from any shoes, which is defined as footwear that did not protect the ankles. And the message of these findings is cover your ankles, wear boots. The lower graph uh, is open wounds. That, those include abrasions, cuts and lacerations. Um, and that's to the exterior of the body. And the pattern really here is the same in terms of riding unprotected. Um, but there's less of a difference between gear that was fitted with impact protection and that which was not. But that's because those garments are still constructed of protective materials, the abrasion, cut and burst resistance materials, but they didn't have the impact protection. Okay. Now, unexpectedly, we found high proportions of damage that potentially exposed the wearers to injury. That is, 
30% of jackets, 28% of pants and 26% of gloves were holed through all layers of material. And the question is, are these levels of damage reasonable under crash conditions? And I would ask you to consider the impact speed, that's the, not the riding speed, but the impact speed, riders break before they have a crash, typically. Um, the impact speeds were, were 40 kilometres or less in 57% of these crashes, and a further 18% were between 41 and 60 kilometres an hour. So that's a total of 75% of our crash crashes um, uh, occurred at 60 kilometres an hour or less. So these are some examples of the types of damage caused in crashes. So this is seams burst, this is abrasion, this is abrasion and split or burst, and more abrasion, and this is another way seams split. But how can riders assess which of the which products in a shop are not going to behave like this if they come off? I'm sometimes asked about why burst resistance is so important in motorcycle clothing. When a rider falls to the ground, there are two forces involved. The first is on impact, that's gravity, which forces the body, the rider's body and their clothing to slide along the into sorry, which forces the rider's body and their clothing into the road surface. And then there's momentum as they slide forward, potentially shredding their clothing on the abrasive surface. And the different types of material behave differently. Stretchy materials such as knits are more likely to be gripped by the abrasive surface on impact. And then as the rider continues to slide forward under momentum, instead of the material freeing because it's gripped by the, the little you know, rocks in the aggregate on the road surface, it will stretch and keep stretching until it ruptures, after which the rider is sliding with their body potentially exposed to the road's surface. Non-stretch materials are less vulnerable to grip, such as leather, or most woven materials are, are less vulnerable to grip. But what this does mean is that all materials and seams should be tested for burst resistance as well as impact resistance, impact abrasion resistance. So that's why we test for burst. Okay. After we'd completed the gear study, um, we did run um, some as part of a survey of a population-based survey of registered owners in in New South Wales. We um, asked questions about the usage rates for motorcyclists, and as as you might expect, the high usage rates for helmets relatively high rates for jackets and gloves, but almost half of respondents still sometimes or never wore motorcycle pants or boots. And this is consistent with those high rates of injury to the legs and feet that were in the, the graph I showed you earlier about injury prevalence. Now, there's been numerous surveys asking riders what PPE that they wear and why or why not. And there are some groups that we've identified who are less likely to ride, who are more likely to ride unprotected than others. These are young people, um, and this is people aged under, under 25. The scooter riders, scooter riders and young people are each 
twice as likely to ride unprotected than other like riders of other other like, regular motorbikes or older riders. Commuters are less likely to ride unprotected because the gear is so is, can be so unsuitable to wear when they get to work. Skeptics, those are people who doubt the protective benefits of the gear, whether it's even worth buying, and of course then it is expensive. But the most common reason is heat discomfort, and riders who, who don't always wear full protection are three times less likely to ride protected in hot conditions. And the question there is, how, well, how can this be addressed? And is there an inherent conflict between protection and thermal comfort? So this was the next stage in the research. We needed to do some thermal testing. Okay. So we decided we, we, we needed to understand whether thermal discomfort matters. Is, is it just something riders need to accept and get on with? Or could it be a risk for safe riding? And this sort of looked like rather an expensive research project. But once again, bless them, the NRMA ACT Road Safety Trust funded this area of research as well. We bought a range of 10 popular all-season jacket and pant combinations, including leather, textile and denim garments, representing Australian and international brands. We designed a series of studies, including laboratory tests, a climate chamber study, and an on-road trial to try to work these things out. Now, all season motorcycle jackets and pants usually have some ventilation openings, which can be controlled by zippers or Velcro. But there are circumstances when, regardless of how hot it is, you can't have the vents open, such as in heavy rain, um, but also, if you if in hot weather, if you're riding slowly or stopped in traffic, there won't be sufficient air movement for ventilation to be effective. So all of our tests were conducted under worst case conditions with all the vents closed. Okay, the first study was conducted at RMIT in Melbourne, where we tested those garments for thermal management using a Newton thermal sweating mannequin. Now. Relative vapour permeability is an index that measures the thermal resistance, so dry heat insulation and, and moisture vapour resistance, which is, which is the ability for water vapour to pass through all layers of, the, of, to the, of material, basically breathability. And the relative vapour permeability index is on a scale from zero to one, which is permeable. So these are the results. And as I, as I said, from zero, which is not breathable or not permeable, to one which is permeable. None of these garments reached 0.3. None of these garments would have been comfortable with the vents closed in hot weather, and possibly not even then, when they were open. Um, the, these were pretty difficult garments. And if you look down at the, at the, um, the legend, the letters indicate the jacket and the textile of the jacket and pants. So T is a textile, So the, and the first letter is jacket and the second one is pants. So these ones are all textile jackets and pants, all of these. This is a textile and jacket with 
denim pants. This is a, text, uh, a leather jacket with denim pants. And then this is an all leather jacket and pants suit. And that's another te textile jacket and pants. But none of them would have been comfortable. The next study was conducted at Deakin University in Geelong on a Cambridge abrasion test machine, which is the one specified in the, Euro the original European standard for, for motorcycle jackets and pants, that's 13595. Now, abrasion resistance on 13595 is measured in seconds, where four seconds is the minimum for passing the European standard. And this is the performance we got out of those 10 garments you know, the same, the same jackets, the same garments in the same order. Now the pass rate for the standard is four. Only four jackets, four, sorry, four pants, pairs of pants, two of them denim, and two jackets, one leather and one textile, would have passed the European standard for abrasion resistance. So these results also confirmed the earlier study in the Australian Capital Territory that many motorcycle garments were really not fit for protecting a rider in a crash. When we put the results of the two studies together, we wanted to see whether higher protection was necessarily associated with poorer thermal management, but this really doesn't seem to show any inherent association between protection and thermal management, which is actually a good result because it means improvement is possible. Okay, so the next stage of the thermal studies was we needed to test human humans in a climate controlled environment to establish whether heat discomfort could be a safety issue for riders. So a, a series of trials were conducted in the climate chamber at Wollongong University. Um, they were tested at three different temperatures, 25, 30 and 35 degrees centigrade, at all, always at 40% humidity. And we only used one type of garment and that was the jacket and pants which had performed worse on the sweating mannequin tests, so worse for breathability. We had 12 volunteers who were instructed to ride, the, the, this, this is, it's not actually an exercise bike but it's, it operates like an exercise bike, it's more scientific than that. Um, but these um, volunteers wearing the motorcycle gear um, for the for the force for, for the three different temperatures, but also a control study in which they were wearing jeans and a long sleeve t-shirt, but still with the helmet gloves and, and pants, uh, helmet and boots. Um, so they were asked to ride this exercise bike very slowly at 60 revs a minute. It's quite slow. But this is the level we had estimated would create the metabolic heat generated when riding a motorcycle in an urban area, 60 kilometres an hour. We'd done a pilot study to establish that. Um, they were also positioned in front of a very large, just part of it here, a very large electric fan which simulated wind speeds at 60 kilometres an hour. Now each trial, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> each trial lasted 90 minutes consisting of three 25 minute sessions of riding with three five minute rest breaks during which we recorded their th thermal sensation and comfort and, and did various tests. 
Now, all of the volunteers wore the non-breathable suit for each temperature trial, plus we had a, the control trial at 25 degrees, wearing, as I said, jeans and a long sleeve shirt, but still the helmet, gloves and boots. Now, the control trials, we found that when you moved to compare the control jeans and shirt with the motorcycle suit at 25 degrees, the skin temperature of the riders wearing the motorcycle clothing was two degrees higher than when they, they were wearing the jeans and t-shirt. So that was a, a substantial increase due to wearing this garment. In the 30 and 35 degree trials, riders' skin, core, tip, core body temperature and heart rate increased significantly within 30 minutes. And at 35 degrees, after 60 minutes, some of the riders were approaching hypothermia and cardiovascular strain. So th there was a, a substantial physiological impact of that increased thermal load in wearing those garments. Now, um, as a result of that, we then ran further trials at 35 degrees with the same subjects wearing the same garment. Um, and ran tests on participants' mood, their attention, their reaction times and fatigue. And we found that all of those measures were adversely affected under that thermal load. So I think this was pretty good evidence that heat discomfort can have implications for riding safety due to impaired cognitive and psychophysiological -physi functioning. Okay, we, we, the, the final stage of this study was that we attempted to replicate the climate chamber study under real world riding conditions. So for this, we had 22 participants back in Canberra who rode for 90 minutes um, on either an urban or rural route with the same process of 25 minutes riding, five minutes rest stops and measurement of their physiological, subjective, thermal and cognitive performance. Now that study, the day that we ran that study, the, the ambient temperature in Canberra was 21 degrees, which is pretty cool. And despite that, using the those garments, their own garments, but with the vents closed, Thermal discomfort was confirmed for urban riders despite their decreasing skin temperature because of the buildup of, of humidity inside the clothing with the vents closed. So, okay. Now, the culmination of this program of research over 10 years provided sufficient evidence we felt to argue for a motorcycle clothing assessment program. There was a question as to whether we needed Australian standards or a rating program, but the key limit, but there are limits to standards because they're based on a pass-fail assessment, whereas rating systems report actual performance. And so it was decided that it was de more desirable in order to enable industry to improve the quality of garments available to riders. It was most instructive and it was also the preferred model by the rider community. So we were commissioned by the Motor Accidents Authority on behalf of the Australian and New Zealand heads of CTP insurance to develop a model to provide riders with reliable independent information on the selection of protective clothing. 
In 2017, a consortium of road safety stakeholders from across Australia and New Zealand, led by Transport for New South Wales, established a committee to fund and manage the star rating system based on the recommendations of the report to the heads of CTP. And Deakin University was awarded the, on a competitive tender, we were awarded the contract to, to develop the to develop the test protocols and to conduct the, the program, which we've been doing since then. Um, in 2019, MotorCap was nominated by rider organisations to win the annual Road Safety Award from the International Federation for Motorcycling in, in, in Monaco. Okay, now um, uh, MotorCap is based on the impact risk models that were specified in the original standard for motorcycle jackets and pants, that's 13595, uh, which is based on crash studies conducted in England. And I'm going to use the following slides to illustrate the test equipment used by MotorCap, but as per EN 13595. We use a Cambridge machine, which was developed by Professor Woods. All layers of material are tested together. And the test sample is clamped over a fine copper wire, which you can see here, um, and, and then on a test head on lever arm. Now, once the abrasive belt reaches speed, the, uh, the lever arm is dro drops the test head onto the test belt. And when the test sample is holed, this breaks the copper wire, which stops the test and records the precise time in fractions of a second. Oh, I've gone too far. Um, the second test is the burst test, which I spoke about earlier. In this a sample, uh, including all layers of materials, is clamped over a diaphragm, which is filled with fluid, hydraulic fluid, under high pressure, which forces it to balloon. Sorry about this. It forces it to balloon up into the sample, which bursts the, the seams, materials or fastenings. Impact resistance is tested on the same type of equipment used in the industry for testing helmets. And this is where we drop a five kilo mass is dropped here. This is dropped from one meter onto an anvil where the impact protector or what we're testing um, is sitting. And the, the force that is transmitted through the test sample is what the score is for impact resistance. Now we don't use the sweating thermal mannequin for testing breathability. We use a guarded he sweating hot plate. And what this does is it, it measures the, t it, 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 the, the, the performance of either the amount of heat escaping to the atmosphere or the humidity escaping to the atmosphere gives us respectively the thermal resistance and the moisture resistance from which we calculate the relative vapor permeability. Uh, we also do a, a rainwater resistance for, um, test using a um, high pressure hose, but this is only used for garments that are sold as being water resistant. This is the MotoCap um, website. We provide test results to most basically as to scores and standards for each garment. We also provide very detailed downloadable reports for those 
to want more detail and riders can compare different products on, on the website. Now this graph shows the relationship between motor cap protection scores and the price of each garment. And as you can see, there really is very little, well, very little cor correlation. So you've got very good, very good performing garments that are much cheaper than the more expensive garments. Since 2018, there's been a new standard for motorcycle protective clothing, clothing in Europe. This is 17092, which is proposed will eventually replace 13595. Now, the pass rates on 17092 range from A, which is the lowest acceptable level, to AA and AAA at the highest level. Now, this graph shows the scores on EN 17092 over the star ratings from Rotocap. And it, I think it's quite obvious there that um, uh, some of the even AAA garments perform relatively poorly on Motocap. However, it's while it appears that Motocap is more rigorous in requirements for abrasion resistance than 17092, this is because Motocap is designed for Australian and New Zealand riding conditions, not European. We have far more chip seal roads compared to Europe, which is asphalt. Now the experience over the last few years of testing hundreds of motorcycle garments has enabled us to identify many good and bad design features and construction errors. Um, and I'm not, I'm running out of time, so I'm not going to read them, but you guys can read them. Um, but there's some very good ideas, much less expensive approaches and, and materials available that can be used. And we are also aware that what Motocap has done has been quite disruptive to the industry. And it's a huge challenge to develop motorcycle protective clothing because it's not just worn like in industry where you just wear it when you're in the presence of a hazard. Motorcycle riding is not an occupational hazard, it's a form of transport. So what we have done is we have pulled together all of the research findings that we've come up with um, and we've put it together in a guide for manufacturers um, so that in the hope that the, the, we can enable the industry to benefit from the, the body of work that, that we've gathered together from other researchers and from our own work. Um, includes a lot of scientifically based information, design methods, techniques um, to improve the effectiveness of protective clothing without expensive approaches. The overall objective for us is to increase motorcyclists' access to protective clothing that's effective and suited to their riding conditions. And this manufacturer's guide is freely available um, for downloading from the Motocap website. Um, this is just an example of one of the results tests. We tested all the materials mostly used in motorcycle clothing and, and, and report on, on what sort of abrasion resistance they give to a garment to help manufacturers make decisions without paying for themselves for those testing to be done. Um, now this is the Cambridge machine tester that I showed you earlier, um, but my colleague Chris Harron has adapted this method of testing clothes in the lab for testing clothing on real world roads, just to well, basically to validate what we do in the lab. But I'd like you to see this video. 
oh, these are the results first. Okay, so what, what we're doing here is we are comparing the all of these, these are very all standard um, outer shell materials for motorcycle clothing. And we've tested them, or Chris has tested them, on a 10 mil chip seal road on in our lab, on the, on the laboratory machine, and on asphalt. And you can see the huge difference it makes between asphalt testing, all of them, much greater, um, a, less, a much less abrasiveness than, um, than either the lab machine or chip seal, but chip seal and, la and the lab machine are very close. So this is the 600 denier polyester on dry asphalt. 1.8 seconds. The same material on wet asphalt. Five point seven seconds, substantial difference. And here it is on dry chip seal. Point four or point five of a second. Okay. So thank you. I'd like to acknowledge and thank the many people who have contributed to this program. The pioneers, Roderick Woods and Deep Marotti, my colleagues, Chris Harris Harren, Paul Van Severi and Tom Gibson, and motorcyclist Brian Wood and Guy Stanford for their ongoing 20 years of lobbying and support. The New South Wales Motor Accidents Authority, NRMA, ACT Road Safety Trust, and Swan Insurance for funding our research. Uh, Transport for New South Wales, particularly Dan Levy, for leading the implementation of, the, of our results to create the star rating model. And, and for each of the Australian states and New Zealand for supporting and funding and managing the ongoing um, program, MotoCap program. And finally, I would like to thank Road Safety Victoria and Transport for New South Wales for funding the development of the guide for manufacturers. Thank you for your interest. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Liz. Um, we've got a lot of great questions that have come in, so okay. we'll get stuck into them. Um, first question we have, it's a hard ask to get riders to wear high-vis vests, but I'm seeing more gear with contrasting patterns that enhance their conspicuity. Being visible on the road can help reduce the chances of being involved in a crash. Is MotorCup considering incorporating a visibility score into its assessment system? Uh, not at this stage. There is research uh, un under consideration at the moment that there is um, some evidence, um, but the it's difficult. Um, high vis the 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 colours the the reflective colours can be mistaken for road signs and you know things that are used for other purposes. It's it might look very distinctive to some people, but it doesn't necessarily trigger the reactions of drivers. And so it's really got to do not with how observable it is, but whether people will recognize it. 
Um, so there is some research planned at the moment to have a look into that. Um, at the moment, the best advice I can give riders is wear white. And you're not going to do that because of the dirt, but wear white in, in urban areas and wear black in country areas. That's the best evidence we've got. With conspicuity, we don't know. And we've, and we've lost a lot. With, we used to have headlights. Motorcycles used to have headlights on when other vehicles didn't. But now all vehicles have the headlights on. So motorcyclists have lost the benefit that we used to have with having being the only vehicles with the headlights on. So in daylight, I mean, we all do it at night. Thank you. Um, we also have, are there any plans to test and issue a star rating for impact protectors? Oh, we do, we do do that for impact protectors. That's, that's wow. part of the program, yeah. Awesome. Next question is, many riders would wear denim jeans. Now that denim jeans, particularly those designed for women, have fibres that enable them to stretch, does this make those jeans less useful in an accident? Uh, I'm, I can't really comment on that. I've, Chris Huron is the person to address that. He's been looking at, it's more than jeans, there are leggings. Now, I'm appalled by the whole idea of wearing a ref leggings made of stretchy material, but they, they are lined with, with denim, with them, um, Kevlar, and, and some apparently do, do perform reasonably well. But it is a, a tricky question and not, not my, not, ask Chris Harron, we'll get to him. <laughs> of course, thank you. Um, do you have any comments on airbag vest technology? Oh, look, it's potentially wonderful. It is really potentially wonderful. Um, but it is expensive and there hasn't been, I think, sufficient research to investigate it. We would, we would love to investigate it. Um, the, the, there's a difference between, there's, there's the, the, the operating system is run by two ways. One is you've got a lanyard that is sort of like pulls the pin on the jacket and it's attached to the bike. And those can go off in, unintended systems or not go off when you really need them. Like when you when you impact another vehicle, um, the, the vest might not go off because the pin doesn't come out. So you have to have to depart the bike before it come, before it, it um, activates. So it's a little mm -hmm. bit tricky. The, the other ones go on um, de deceleration movement, the electronic ones, um, and they're probably better. Um, but it is tricky and some of the best research is um, copyright, so it's hard to access. So again, a tricky area, but, but an area for the future. That, but certainly, it's, I'd wear one rather than not wear one, if you could, but not a lanyard one. You, you have to leave the bike to, to yeah. get it to activate. Okay. Wonderful, thank you. This person's asked, with steep roads and with the advent of e-bikes, enabling bicycle riders to also attain higher speeds, could motorcycle protective garments be of value to these riders? Look, um, uh, ordinary ordinary bikes, you look at what they, how fast they ride in, mm. in races. They've always been able to ride very fast. Um, and I, my research has also looked at the injuries for cyclists um, and they they get devastating injuries just as motorcyclists do. Um, yes, I, th I, th I think that the potential for protective clothing for cyclists is 
is possible, but then the thermal issues, particularly, you know, if you if it's powered by the cyclist, the the thermal effort of doing it, the, you know, that's a conflict with the type of protection that you can be wearing. Um, with e-bikes, I don't know. We have to look into it. We will have mm. to look into it. But but the lightness of the vehicle and what you're wearing is a factor. Yeah, definitely. Thank you. Um, next question is, um, I know you've addressed part of this in your presentation, but would you say there's an asphalt surface that is better for motorcyclists in the event of an accident? Certainly open graded asphalt seems to be more hazardous. Are there any other studies? Um, there's chips, there's chip seal and asphalt. There's different grades of both, but it's where where the aggregate is proud of the, you know, where you've got an uneven surface and particularly where you've got two grades of aggregate, so a small one and a big one. Um, those are the ones that just rip, you know, there's some roads that just rip the clothing apart that doesn't matter what the clothing is, it'll just rip apart. Um, but certainly asphalt is is kinder to, than chip seal is kinder to, to riders, but there's other, it's more expensive and there's other reasons why road authorities would be using one rather than the other. Thank you. Um, next question. In the summer, it's often common for jacket wearing riders to wear jackets with the main front zip zipped up to only around 20%, for example, up to the belly button, in order to increase exposure to wind and thus cooling. Would this have a substantial impact on the jacket's protective performance? I tend to think it would be more likely to pull it off. Um, mm. But in summer, the, the and, and really in summer, um, I would prefer that they have their vents open and I, and I also prefer vents to mesh. There are some, I mean, I've seen garments that were completely made of mesh um, and I don't recommend them, but there are some, some of my colleagues do. But vents are much better because they, they can, they're less exposing and you're less likely to rip off. If the zip's half undone, then it can be completely undone under force. And they're not tested for that. They are tested for when they're properly, you know, fully done and locked at the top. So I wouldn't do that. I would buy a jacket that's got vents that you can open. And what you want is air to go in at the front and out at the back. So there's no point in just having a couple of entries at the front because you, you, you want that passage of air to take the heat and the sweat with it. Yeah, definitely. Thank you. Next question we have. What considerations were given to the radiant heat from the sun when you were testing in the lab? Oh, lots of it. Um, in the in the photo, you might have noticed that we had some red looking things up the top. They were heat heat radiant heaters. So yes, we did look at radiant heat. That we that the room was um, at the at the is in its climate chamber. It's basically a, a shipping container actually. Big oh one. wow. And we, 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 you know, pump it up to 35 degrees, if that was the temperature we were testing at, 40% humidity, and it's controlled. This is a, you know, high-tech science here, despite being a shipping container. <laughs> and then we had these radiant things so that this, it was coming down on the riders. Those riders at 35 degrees had puddles, literally puddles of sweat around the base of the 
base of the bike. Um, and it was hard to know how the sweat was even getting out because the vents were closed. They were wearing gloves that covered the out, the, the covered the, the sleeve and they were wearing boots. Um, but still, I was having to mop the floor after each test. So they sweat, they did sweat a lot. But, you know, that we had to test the worst it could get at, but, but at, under those conditions. So you must have had really incredible dedicated volunteers for that. Oh, um, they, want, look, they had to do that ride five times. Oh my goodness! And wow. But they, but they were, they were, um, they weren't riders. Or some of them were, but they were actually physiolog physiology students from Wollongong Uni and and staff from Wollongong University, and they're just really, and some of them were very fit, some of them were less fit. So we, you know, we wanted to have a, a, a an average range of ages, body weight, and and fitness condition. Um, to to make it a realistic trial, those tr those trials are incredibly intensive for everybody. Mm. Um, but yeah, yeah, but yeah, I I thanked them all. I gave every one of them a model bike, you know, one of those toy oh, motorcycles, uh, and I got I chose the the type of bike that I thought most suited their personality. Oh, that's so wonderful. <laughs> Um, we are getting close to the end and we're about to run out of time, but we'll just finish up um, with one last question. Should we consider incentivizing the purchasing of motorcap tested gear to further increase awareness of the program? Absolutely. I think that they, sh they should be, um, it's, it's safety gear and so there should be no GST on it. I mean, I really I feel very strongly about that. Um, uh, um, sometimes you might find that um, insurance, we, we might find something with CTP insurers giving a benefit for that. But it's it's when you start, I mean, certainly I think that the GST thing is that just should be done. It's safety equipment. There's no question. Um, but sometimes when you put a financial incentive in there, there are some people who will benefit more or less than others. So it needs to be examined. Yeah, definitely. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Liz. We have so many more questions um, and um, Liz is going to endeavour to get them um, answered shortly. I'll turn it over to you, Katarina. Okay. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. So my camera uh, doesn't seem to be working, but that's that's all right. Um, thanks again, Liz, for such a fantastic presentation. Um, and we are receiving um, a lot of messages uh, with our audience saying thank you and congratulating you for this groundbreaking research that can uh, save many lives. So thanks so much again. Uh, and thanks everyone for joining us. Um, 
for today's webinar. I just have a couple of slides to finish up. Um, you can see on your screen our upcoming sessions. If you're interested in any of them, please visit our website for more information and to register. Um, and when we close out today's session, a questionnaire will pop up on your screen. Please take a couple of minutes to send us your feedback. Um, it really helps us to know what you liked or didn't like about the session and what suggestions you have for future webinars. Once again, today's session has been recorded and we will send you the link to the recording when it's published on our website. Thanks again, everyone. Stay well and safe and enjoy the rest of your day. We'll see you next time.